Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are in the last book of the Old Testament. We are in the book of Malachi, four chapters, the final book. And this starts with verse 1, where it talks about the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And that word, Malachi, is the only time we read in the whole book the name of this prophet. And we read that his name is Malachi, but that could also be kind of encoded. You see, that word in Hebrew means, my servant, And we did this in the show notes for you. In the Greek, it actually doesn't say Malachi. It actually says, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by my servant. And so Malachi is inviting us to consider a servant of the Lord that's going to do some great things. And that's what Malachi means, my servant. And so this is the time period of the second temple. The second temple has been built. The Jews are coming back out of exile, and they're establishing their identity. And in the midst of this, they're having struggles. And some of the struggles are actually discussed right here in this first chapter. One of those struggles is that the priests are getting sloppy. Now, it's been several years since we came back from Babylon, and we've rebuilt the temple, and I wonder if just kind of in that interim, things have kind of gotten sloppy. We have a tendency to stay focused on things, but if we don't have a constant reminder, we have a tendency to kind of get sloppy. So here in chapter 1, verse 6, it says, O priests that despise my name. And ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? And then he's going to lay out his case against the priests. And that's kind of what the book of Malachi is. It's a case against the priests for kind of shirking their responsibility. He gets pretty specific in chapter 2, where he says in verse 7, For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth. And he is the messenger of the Lord's host. And then the very next word is, But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have cursed many to stumble at the law, and ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. And then this big accusation, in verse 9 he says, Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. And I want to talk briefly about that idea that they've gotten sloppy And their sloppiness is manifesting in being partial in the law. Now, I think for a priest, that could mean many things. I'm guessing one of the things it meant is that they are simply administering the law unequally, that maybe they have favorites, and other people don't get that special treatment. So maybe they're having favorites. And I think the application for all of us is they are picking and choosing the commandments they want to keep. They're not evil. They're not doing evil things as much as they're just not fully keeping the commandments. And I think that's the crack that Satan walks through. The moment we come down from the mountain and think we're safe, the moment we obey 98% of the time, the moment we make an exception and we say, look, it's okay if I'm not faithful in all things because I'm mostly faithful. And I think that's where it begins. I want to take you back to the way this Old Testament began. It's sad that we're ending this way, 
because at the very beginning, one of the key characters of the Old Testament was Abraham. And Abraham taught us to keep the world out. And there was this beautiful little moment where the king of Salem offers him a deal. And Abraham said to the king of Salem, I have lift up my hands to the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread, even to a shoe latchet. I will not take anything that is thine. And that's the legacy of Abraham. And those of us who are descendants of Abraham and are claiming his blessings and seeking to have the blessings in our life, the blessings of protection, the blessings of posterity, having a place in the Lord's kingdom, all the P's that we've talked about this year, we have to honor Abraham the way he lived the covenant and say, I will not take anything that is not the Lord's. I won't let even a thread's worth in. And these pre- are getting sloppy. They're partial in the law, which suggests to me they are only partially fulfilling their responsibilities. So I just want to leave this idea with this wonderful quotation from Boyd K. Packer. He says, the gospel might be likened to the keyboard of a piano, a full keyboard with a selection of keys on which one who is trained can play a variety without limits, a ballad to express love, a march to rally, a melody to soothe, and a hymn to inspire, an endless variety to suit every mood and satisfy every need. How short-sighted it is then to choose a single key and endlessly tap out the monotony of a single note, or even two or three notes, when the full keyboard of limitless harmony can be played. Some members of the church who should know better pick out a hobby key or two and tap them incessantly to the irritation of those around them. They can dull their own spiritual sensitivities. They can lose track that there is a fullness of the gospel. They may reject the fullness in preference to a favorite note. This becomes exaggerated and distorted, leading them away into apostasy." I think that's what the Lord is rebuking here in this book. It's that tendency to be sloppy, to be partial in the law, and to play one or two notes. I really like this aspect of the gospel, and I'm going to play that note over and over and over again, but I will not fully embrace the full aspect of the gospel. Yeah, Bryce, I like that. I I think that you can kind of sum up these first couple chapters in Malachi with really four things that Malachi is calling out. And I think these four things are the questioning of God's love. I think that there are some instances in these chapters, at least the first couple, where they're questioning God's love or his justice. And then another one would be the offering of impure sacrifices. Over and over again, we have the prophet Malachi saying something like, you know, you guys are offering these sacrifices that are not really worthy of God. Because that's easy, right, Mike? It's just easy. I don't have to put forth the extra effort to make it right. It's just okay. It's good enough. And we just forget that the Lord should get our very best efforts. Right, right. I mean, look in chapter 1, verse 7, you offer polluted bread upon mine altar. Verse 8, you offer the blind for sacrifice. Is this not evil? Verse 13 of chapter 1, yea, 
said also, Behold, what a weariness this is. Ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts, and ye have brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye have brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? And he's, it's rhetorical. What he's basically saying is, no, uh, that's not acceptable. So that's really the, the second thing, offering of impure sacrifices. The third is the Lord warning them about marrying outside of the covenant. And then finally, the lack of diligence in keeping the commandments. And so these are the main issues of the first couple chapters. And Malachi is basically asking them to rethink their ways. Now, for me, the way I look at some of these verses, specifically the ones that discuss the offering of impure sacrifices, is I ask myself, am I offering all that I can? Am I, am I bringing a sick and torn offering to my family when I come home from work because I'm tired and I just don't really want to make the effort or the full effort? Or what about my calling? Maybe I bring a, a half-hearted effort because I don't see the significance of it. And I think sometimes one of the ways we can apply this is to ask ourselves, do we give the very best people in our lives our like half-hearted effort? Are we giving our best selves? Because I really think in our marriage relationships or in the relationships with our families, those are the most important things that we can focus on. And I think that I'm just checking myself. I'm talking about me. That's kind of how I apply it. I do want to talk about one verse here before we move forward. Uh, and that's this verse. It's very kind of puzzling. So if you go to Malachi chapter 1, I'm just going to read the first bit here, starting in verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I love Jacob. Verse 3. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragon's in the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the waste places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build them, but I will throw them down. So there's this distinction made in the very beginning of Malachi between the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau. Now, if you remember when we talked about this with Obadiah, in Obadiah, he really rails against Idumea or Edom, and that is geographically the place where the descendants of Esau lived. And there was this enmity between the house of Judah, or the house of Jacob, and the people of Edom. And so in this verse, it's very troubling where it says, where the Lord says, I hated Esau. And when scholars look at this stuff, you know, how, how do they interpret some of these passages? And the best way that they have found to try to interpret some of these more troubling passages is to get out of our culture and go into the culture of the people that lived during this time period, survey the, the literature that's out there, and see how other people are using these terms. And in the treaties of the ancient Near East, these treaties basically said, if the people kept the treaty, they, quote, loved their suzerain, or they loved their king. If they broke the treaty, they were outside of the purview of the covenantal treaty, and then hence the king hated them. That if the individual was outside of the covenant because they broke the rule with the leader, then the leader hated them. And I think reading this through the lens of ancient Near Eastern vassal treaties, to me, is the answer. And in the ancient Near East, when a overlord made treaties with his people, that's kind of the way it's read. And so I geek out in the show notes on this. I think this is important. We give you the Hebrew translation as well as the Greek translation of the text, because in the third century BC, this text was translated into Greek 
and the Greek translation is using the same idea. I'm just going to read you the Greek translation here. It says, And Esau have I hated, and I have put his mountains into destruction, even his inheritance into the wilderness. And so since both translations are really following this line of thinking, then you got to start asking yourself these questions like, why is this in here? And I think reading this through the lens of ancient Near Eastern vassal treaties is the answer. When we see it that way, we see, okay, this isn't God hating them. This is God acknowledging that they are outside of his protection because they're not keeping the covenant. Now, why do we spend some time talking about this? Well, I think one of the reasons is because this same idea is taught in Helaman chapter 15. So if you go to Helaman 15, this is what it says. Verse 4, But behold, my brethren, the Lamanites, hath he hated, because their deeds have been evil continually, and this because of the iniquity of the tradition of their fathers. Now the he in verse 4 of Helaman 15 is God. And I think if we read the scriptures and say God hates people, and we read it through our modern lens, in my opinion, we're doing it wrong. And so sometimes the scriptures themselves can be a barrier to our gospel learning because we're in a different culture. So the best way to kind of break this down is to read it through that lens, the lens of the culture of the people who wrote them. And the other thing we have to do is balance it with what we know in our culture. So we could take that phrase and say, oh, I thought God didn't hate people. How come the Scripture says that God hates people? Well, let's balance that inside our culture. What do we know in the Restoration that would bring light to that phrase? Well, my mind goes to section 130, where the Lord says, there is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain a blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. Therefore, I can make the assumption that the Lord is saying, I wanted to bless you. I would willingly have blessed you. That's the nature of God. That's what we've come to know in the Restoration, that God would offer all of his blessings to all of his children, but that blessings come by obedience to law. And God is committed to obeying law. So what Heavenly Father is saying is, I couldn't bless them because they weren't obeying the law that they needed to bring that blessing. And so balance the Scriptures. When you read something in the Scriptures that seems to be concerning, ask yourself, what do I know in the whole spectrum of the gospel, all of the piano keys together, that might help bring light and balance to this particular troubling phrase? Because if we cherry-pick it, we could really cause damage. Just to add to what you just said, Bryce, 1 Nephi 17.35, Nephi says, The Lord esteemeth all flesh in one. He that is righteous is favored of God. So I I really like that the Lord esteemeth all flesh in one. Another really good verse that teaches this idea, and this is Nephi again, 2 Nephi 26, 33. Nephi, speaking of God, says, He invites them all to come unto him and partake of his goodness, and he, meaning God, denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female, and he remembereth the heathen, and all are alike unto God, both Jew and the Gentile. So I really think that helps us balance this first part of Malachi that can be troubling. I'm acknowledging it, but I'm also trying to balance it with culture. Now, Having talked about the negatives, the things that the priests were doing that needed to be corrected, 
Malachi has an eye to the future. Malachi is a brilliant prophet who sees a beautiful restoration coming, and he starts hinting at it all the way in chapter 1. I love verse 11, where he says, "...from the rising of the sun even unto the going down of the same..." My name shall be great among the Gentiles. Now, those are key words to say when the gospel goes from Jew to Gentile. And that's our dispensation. From the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. And I want to focus that right in the middle of it, he says that in our day, we will offer a pure offering. Now, that's in contrast to the partial offerings that they're offering in Malachi's day. But it also is a commentary on our day, that there is a pure offering. Notice it's singular. I don't want to put too much emphasis, but it says a pure offering. So what is the pure offering that Malachi saw happening in our day? If you'll jump to chapter 3, where he really starts talking about our day, verse 1, I will send my messenger. By the way, can I just add this price? There's the pun. Mal-aki. That literally is my messenger, but that's Malachi's name. So when I said in verse 1 of chapter 1, this is the only time Malachi appears, well, that's true in the English but not in the Hebrew. So can you see what the author is doing? The author is saying, okay, Malachi is talking, but we're also talking about my messenger. So this is a dad joke. This is punning going on. Sorry, Bryce, continue. It's great. I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way. Now, this is every messenger that's ever come. This is John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. This is Joseph Smith preparing the way for the restoration. This is Elias. This is Elijah. Let's not necessarily get specific, but let's just kind of keep it general. I will prepare my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. Now, he's the messenger. Whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, speaking of his coming, the question of all questions, this is the last verse of Revelation chapter 6, this is the question of our day, who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Now, describing our day, it's a day of refinement. It's a day of purification, and specifically, he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. That's the prophecy, that the sons of Levi need to be purified so that they can offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now, because that's so germane to our day and our purposes, allow me to take you to the Doctrine and Covenants. Mike and I in our Doctrine and Covenants podcast spent a lot of time on this subject. If you were with us, great. If you want to go back and listen. But let me walk you through that whole procession of the sons of Levi offering an offering. Now, I fully admit it's probably many fulfillments. Could it be a literal fulfillment like some of the past prophets, seers, and revelators have predicted? Certainly. 
But I want to focus on the emphasis the Lord makes in the doctrine and covenant. So allow me to focus on what's in the scriptures. So let's first start with the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood in section 13. When John the Baptist appears to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, he restores the priesthood of Aaron. And then after talking about the keys that it holds, he says, This shall never be taken again from the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. Now, Oliver Cowdery, at the end of Joseph Smith's history, adds an alternate understanding of that. Joseph Smith says that the Aaronic priesthood wouldn't be taken from the earth until the offering. Oliver, and again in section 128, suggests that the priesthood was restored that the sons of Levi might offer. And I think both are great. So the priesthood will not be taken away until it happens, and the priesthood was restored so that it can happen. But there are our key words. Sons of Levi will offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now let's follow that up in Doctrine and Covenant section 84, when the Lord gives the oath and covenant of the priesthood. He also addresses the idea of the sons of Aaron, but he expands it. Now, it makes sense that Malachi would mention the sons of Levi because those were the priesthood holders in his day, and it makes sense that Aaron would reference the sons of Levi because that was the priesthood he was restoring. But by section 84, we have the Melchizedek priesthood on earth as well. So notice the addition, starting in verse 31, section 84, verse 31, therefore, as I said concerning the sons of Moses... For the sons of Moses and also the sons of Aaron shall offer an acceptable offering. So now we have an addition. So it's not just the sons of Aaron. It's the sons of Moses, which suggests it's a Melchizedek priesthood offering. Not just the Aaronic priesthood, it's a Melchizedek priesthood offering. But now in verse 31, it reveals where that offering will be made. He says, in the house of the Lord. Now, verse 32, the sons of Moses and of Aaron shall be filled with the glory of the Lord upon Mount Zion in the Lord's house. So you can see we have a restoration, and the restoration needs to purify us with Melchizedek priesthood ordinances. We need temple covenants. And because of the Melchizedek and the Aaronic priesthood ordinances, we are being purified So what then is a hint at what is this offering in the house of the Lord? So now turn with me to Doctrine and Covenants section 128. Now this is a letter that Joseph Smith wrote, kind of revealing a lot of things that have been taught him were on his mind regarding the salvation of the dead and the work for the dead. If we go back to section 127, He says in verse 5, I give unto you a word in relation to the baptism of your dead. Now go to section 128 where he says in verse 1, I now resume the subject of the baptism for the dead as that subject seems to occupy my mind and press itself upon my feelings the strongest. How many hours did Joseph Smith spend pondering and thinking about the salvation of the dead? So then he spells out a whole bunch of doctrines and understandings and procedures, and then he gets to this idea of 
the messenger and the sons of Levi. And he requotes Malachi. Verse 17, again in connection with this quotation, I will give you a quotation from one of the prophets who had his eye fixed on the restoration of the priesthood. Now that's very telling as you read Malachi. I'm going to talk about one of the prophets who had his eye fixed on the restoration of the priesthood and the glories to be revealed in the last days. And in an especial manner, the most glorious of all subjects belonging to the everlasting gospel, namely the baptism for the dead. For Malachi says, and now he quotes what we're going to be talking about in just a minute, but it's this idea of the restoration of keys and priesthood. He says he could have rendered a better translation, but it's sufficient enough to know that the earth will be smitten with a curse unless there is a welding link of some kind or other upon the fathers and the children. Now, we'll get to all of this in just a minute with Malachi's final prophecy. But then Joseph Smith seems to tie all of these into a bow, and he brings the priesthood and Aaron and Moses and an offering and a temple all together. So once again, he quotes Malachi in verse 24. This is Doctrine and Covenants 128, verse 24. Behold, the great day of the Lord is at hand, and who can abide the day of his coming? See, that's right out of Malachi 4. And who can stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he's going to continue the quotation of Malachi and emphasize, he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now, that's the end of the quotation. Now, watch what Joseph Smith does. After quoting Malachi, he now says, let us therefore. Now, tell me that's not Joseph Smith making a conclusion. It sure seems to me that the prophet is saying, given all that's been said about the sons of Levi and this offering, here's the conclusion that Joseph Smith came to. Let us, therefore, as a church and as a people and as Latter-day Saints. Now, that's significant to me because it's not just the people who hold offices in the Aaronic priesthood or those who hold offices in the Melchizedek priesthood. It's the covenants and the ordinances and the refinement that both of those priesthoods do to our lives. So let us as a church, as a people, and as Latter-day Saints... Offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now, Joseph Smith is going to present what he believes a good portion of that offering is. Let us present in the holy temple, when it is finished, a book containing the records of our dead. Now, there's only one word we've got to laugh. We've got sons of Levi, which we've clarified. We've got offering we've got righteousness, and we've got temple. But the book has to be worthy of all acceptation. It has to be an acceptable offering. And the offering Joseph Smith seems to be pointing at is the completion of the work, that we have completed the records, that we have saved Heavenly Father's children, that we brought everyone we could to the temple, and we performed saving ordinances. If they're alive, we invite them into the temple. If they're members, we invite them to be perfected so they can go to the temple. And if they're dead, we take their names into the temple and redeem them as best we can. 
I don't believe the book is yet acceptable, not because it's bad, but because it's imperfect. We need your records in it. We need your children's records in it. Our mission as Latter-day Saints, and perhaps one of the main reasons the church was restored, was so that we could offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness of a book containing the completed records of all of his children. And that book has to be worthy of acceptation. Do you see why prophets from thousands of years ago have been talking about our offering and the work that we're going to perform? By the way, Bryce, when you talk about the offering and the book, I can't help but say, perhaps the book of Malachi is hinting at this image of a tree, the family tree. The Bible begins with the image of a tree and a man and a woman married by the Lord. And to me, I take chapter three and four and the whole thing, and I'm sorry I keep repeating myself throughout the Old Testament because it keeps coming up, but we have temple imagery. This whole thing is temple because look in chapter three, verse eight. How are we going to build the temple? Well, verse 8, 9, and 10 says it's going to cost money to build this kingdom and to put this tree together. So bring the tithes into the storehouse and prove me. And the Lord is basically saying in verse 10, I'm going to take care of you guys. Verse 12, the nations are going to call you blessed. Why? We're putting the family together. Oh, and we're also looking out for the widow and the fatherless. That's chapter 3, verse 5. The Lord's going to send his messenger to the temple. That's chapter 3, verse 1. Even the messenger of the covenant. Now, I really like that image of the messenger having multiple fulfillment. What if it's John that's preparing the way before the Lord? John is, in many regards, that Elias, because Elias is the one who says, make straight the way of the Lord. Now, I know when we get to it in the Gospels, John's going to say, I'm not Elias, but then he comes out and says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm not that Elias, but I am a Elias. (laughs) Right. I mean, there's different ways to read it, but John is that person. But what if you're that person? What if when you go on your mission to Ukraine or Mexico or wherever you go, and you come to a family and you say, I know you believe in Christ. Let us teach you and give you more information that you're covenant sons and daughters of God. There's added revelation, there's temple covenants, and your family can be brought into this tree, into the whole family tree of Adam and Eve, and that there's a father and a mother in heaven, and we're part of this family, and we're brought back into the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the covenants of the temple. Are you not the messenger that has prepared the way that will suddenly come to the temple? even the messenger of the covenant. That's Malachi 3, verse 1. So I really like to, when I teach students about Malachi, I try to personalize it. This is you guys. Like It's the temple. I mean, look in verse 7. Return unto me, and I will return unto you. Now look, it shouldn't surprise you that this chapter, chapter 3, ends with reference to a book. It all ties together. He promises the coming of a messenger, He's going to purify the sons of Levi so that they make an offering. And then all of a sudden in verse 16, he's talking about a book. This time he refers to it as the book of remembrance. Verse 16 says, they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Now, what if that's a reference to throughout all of time that we are writing a book of remembrance? 
Now, I love that back in my day, back in the olden times, my grandma gave each one of us a little book and we kept our genealogy in it. And guess what that book was titled? Right on the cover, it says, My Book of Remembrance. And in that, I kept the records of my ancestors. So what if we're building that book and we call it a book of remembrance? What if we're supposed to remember the people? And what if it's an invitation to always remember the offering that we need to make? Why? Because verse 17, they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, and that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. I love that phrase. They shall be mine. Guess why he wants that book? Guess why the Father wants that book? Because those are his children, and he needs them to be saved in his kingdom. Exactly. So with that, we're going to proceed to Malachi 4, and there's some really good things to consider if you go and read Joseph Smith history when he speaks to Moroni because Moroni is going to quote some of this stuff, and it reads a little bit different. I would just encourage you to read that and look at some of the differences there. This is a chapter about a final day, and we're back to that tree imagery. Look in verse 1 of chapter 4. The day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. There's your tree imagery. So those that reject the Lord will not be connected to the tree. And that's very sad. And so we do work for the dead, and we, we encourage everyone to come. But what about the righteous? That's verse 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and he shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. I want to pause briefly and look at verse 2. We're going to basically look at this through three different translations. The Masoretic text, the Hebrew, the Septuagint, the Greek, and the Syriac. That's often called the Peshitta. It's one of the earliest Bibles, a little bit newer than the Septuagint. So here is the Hebrew reading of the text. And just so you know where it says son of righteousness in English, S-U-N, that's how it reads in the Hebrew. That word shamash was a god of the sun in the ancient Near East. And so here it is in the English. The translation from the Hebrew directly is as follows. And to you that fear my name, the son of righteousness, she will come forth with healing in her wings, and you will go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And that you in that verse is you all, you guys, that's masculine plural. And so my reading of this in the text, it's very provocative. It opens up some ideas. We have this son of righteousness coming forth, and it's all feminine. She's arising. She has healing in her wings. And you, the, the audience, the listeners, are told that they're going to grow up as calves of the stall. So this is just my interpretation of this, but I see this as a heavenly mother image being evoked by Malachi to teach that when the Lord comes again, there is a divine feminine individual that's there, that's present. And to me, when it says that she will come forth with healing in her wings, another way to read that is that she will embrace you. Now, to me, that's a very powerful temple image because I believe when I cross through the veil, 
I will embrace my mom. I, that's just my personal Mike Day belief. And I think that's, that's a very personal thing. And not everybody interprets this verse this way, but that's kind of how I read it. Now, in the Greek, this is how it reads. And to you all that fear my name, will the son of righteousness, and that's S-U-N, son of righteousness, arise even with healing in his wings, and you all will go forth, and you will all leap as calves that have been released from bonds. It reads a little bit different in the Greek. We have the masculine being evoked there in that verse. The feminine reading does not hold in the Greek translation. Now, we geek out on the show notes on this. You can get into this and see kind of how we break this down. And then in the Syriac version, or the Peshitta, the Peshitta is second only to the Greek Septuagint in its antiquity. It's coming to us from about the first or second centuries in the Common Era. So it's old, but it's not as old as the Greek Bible. It's a few hundred years newer, but this is how it reads. The son of righteousness shall rise to you worshipers of my name and healing is on his tongue and you shall go out and you shall jump up like calves of the herd. Now, why do we spend some time talking about this? Well, I think one of the reasons is, is it's good for us to note that there's some ambiguity in some of these texts, and I certainly don't have all the answers. But when I look into the, to the Hebrew construction of this verse, it opens up this idea that there is a divine feminine that is reflected throughout the Hebrew Bible. And it's and- worth mentioning every verse where we can find her in the scriptures. It's worth pointing those out. I would absolutely agree with that. I think it's worth considering. And I just want to acknowledge at the end of this Old Testament year that we do, as Latter-day Saints, do acknowledge that we have a Heavenly Mother. I love that in the Young Women's theme, it says that we are daughters of our Heavenly Parents. And I wanted to just acknowledge this in Malachi chapter 4 as we go forward. And let me throw one more in, Mike. A poem written by Eliza R. Snow that has now been incorporated into our hymn book in hymn number 292. And Eliza Snow attributes a lot of this to the teachings that Joseph Smith gave. And she writes, I had learned to call thee Father through the Spirit from on high. But until the key of knowledge was restored, I knew not why. In the heavens are parents single. No, the thought makes reason stare. Truth is reason, truth eternal. Tells me I've a mother there. Now, as I read verse 4, you think about what Mike just said about Malachi chapter 4. When I leave this frail existence, when I lay this mortal by, Father, Mother, may I greet you in your royal courts on high. Then at length, when I've completed all you sent me forth to do, with your mutual approbation, let me come and dwell with you. It's exactly what Malachi is trying to say, the embrace. And we will leap, I for one, will leap like a calf coming out of the stall. Bryce, that's beautiful. I love that. So with that, we're going to proceed to the end of Malachi 4, where we talk about this coming of the Lord and the Lord preparing his people. Now, there's no way we can prepare that offering. If that offering is a book of the record of our dead, we have to have the authority to produce the ordinances that are going to be recorded in that book. We have to have the keys, and we have to have Elijah come. And so that is how we're going to end. And think about the message this is making, that the Old Testament ends in the prophecy 
of sending one of those Old Testament prophets forth in the latter days to bring the keys that will allow us to produce that book. So the book of Malachi ends, and the Old Testament as we have it ends with this prophecy. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Now, make sure you read section two, because when Moroni comes to Joseph Smith, he quotes these two verses, but he renders it a little bit different. So what we're reading in section two is Moroni's rendition of Malachi 4. And Moroni says it a little bit different. He says, instead of, I will send you Elijah the prophet, Moroni says, behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet. Now I'm going to continue in section two, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now watch him give another tree image. There's so many tree images here because Elijah is going to plant. And that means something's going to grow And so we talk in our day, we talk in the restoration about the spirit of Elijah growing, and I caught the spirit of Elijah. He planted something in my heart, and that plant has grown. So I'm going to plant in the hearts of the children. That's us. That's our day. The promise is made unto the fathers. Now, you can read that multiple ways. The fathers often has a reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to plant in the children the promises, the covenants given to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I think we can also read it, I will plant in the children the promises made to their fathers, their ancestors. And our hearts need to turn to our fathers. Now, you're going to see both of them. You're going to see the promises made to the fathers and then the heart shall turn to their father. See, both of those fathers are listed in verse 2. So Elijah has come to point us and plant something in our heart that draws us to the covenants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant of the gospel. And I remind you that the heart and soul of the Abrahamic covenant, as taught in Abraham 2.11, is to bless all the families of the earth with three things, the gospel, salvation, and eternal life. So as my heart turns to the fathers, and I accept the covenant of Abraham, my life now becomes a quest to bless families with the gospel, salvation, and eternal life. Then my heart turns to my fathers, my ancestors, the one that brought me to where I am, and the debt of gratitude I owe them. And I want to bless those families with the Abrahamic blessings of the gospel and eternal life. And so that leads us up to the very end. In Malachi, it says, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse, but Moroni renders it in section two a little bit differently and allowed me to just be a little bold for a moment. If it were not so, this is Moroni's rendition in section two, if it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. In other words, If we do not receive the keys to seal families, then this whole earth was a waste. Let that sink in. 
if we do not have the keys to make that book and seal families, then this whole earth was a waste. Now, President Nelson has taught repeatedly that salvation is an individual affair. You can get to a kingdom of glory on your own. You don't need anyone else to get to any kingdom of glory, including the celestial. You can go to the celestial kingdom on your own. That's an individual affair. I mean, we need Jesus. Yes. I don't need another human being. That's an individual effort in terms of me and God. But if I want exaltation, President Nelson has repeatedly said that salvation is an individual affair, but exaltation is a family affair. I cannot be exalted without a family. Salvation is important, and making it to a kingdom of glory is absolutely essential. And thank goodness we have an atoner and a redeemer who makes a resurrected body possible so that I can go to a kingdom of glory. But if the earth only existed for salvation purposes and not exaltation, then we missed it. And this earth was a waste. So do you sense Heavenly Father's priority Way back in the very beginning of this year, when we did Moses chapter one, the very first chapter of our scriptures, the Lord revealed in that chapter, it is his work and his glory to bring to pass the immortality. Now there's the salvation. God is going to bring about the salvation of everyone. But notice how it ended. It is his work and his glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life. We must save our families, not just the one I live in, but all of the families from whom I descended and all of the families that are growing up as a tree from me. I love that the Old Testament emphasizes right there that our hearts need to turn to family. And if we don't exalt families, at least as many as we can, and we don't present to the Lord a list of those families that have performed the ordinances in order to make them eternal, if we don't offer that offering to the Lord, then this whole earth was a waste. But the beauty is we will, we are, and it's going to be fixed. It's going to be beautiful. And it's been a really good year, hasn't it, Bryce? It's been fabulous. We've covered so much stuff. And I think this is why the church studies the Old Testament every fourth year. We need to understand how the race began if we're going to carry that baton across the finish line. We have to understand our roots. We have to understand Abraham and the covenant that was made. We have to have watched Israel struggle to keep that covenant. We have to understand the bondage that came because they couldn't keep that covenant. We have to understand the nature of the God that led them out of Egypt and loved them and yet allowed them to go into Babylon and Assyria and yet the God who brought them back. We have to understand our roots, our history, so that we can be the Israel they all saw that we would be. By the way, nice segue. I'm going to just say this. We're not done with history. So let me just tell you, next week, we are going to cover Matthew chapter 1 and 2. But we're not going to skip the stuff in between. You see, Malachi kind of ends a few hundred years before the Gospels. And so that time period is called the intertestamental period. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, 
and then jump into Matthew chapter 1 and 2 for next week. And so we're going to kind of get you a little bit ahead of your Come Follow Me studies for next year. So with that, we thank you for listening, and we just really appreciate you and your, your great comments and your listening to the podcast and sharing it with friends. Thank you so much. It's been a great year as we've covered the Old Testament. We'll see you guys next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.